talking with Bucky Berger. Berger? Berger? Either way. Half my family says it one way. So. That's strange. Was, where does the name come from? Do you know? Um, well, originally uh, from Germany and Poland. There's a okay. section of Poland that went back and forth between Germany and, and Poland and Russia and stuff like that. So, you know, that's the origins of the name, really, you know. So if you don't know Bucky, Bucky has played drums for his entire career. He's played with everybody, which is what I want to talk about. <laughs> okay, maybe not everybody, but a, no, a, a wide variety of people, which makes it very interesting. Um, you, you come from Montreal, if I remember Originally, correctly. yeah. yeah. Tell born. me about growing up in Montreal. Oh, Montreal was wonderful when I grew up. Um, you know, it, but it always... It was, a, it, w- it was weird in some ways because I grew up in an English area. Mm-hmm. And even though I was a minority English, um, I, I had some Francophone friends. But it was really, it was very one-sided towards English. Right. So if you were French when I was growing up, you couldn't get a job. Uh, unless you spoke English at places like Eaton's and mm-hmm. major jobs or something for summer jobs. And the media was really limited and it was mostly English. Um, so in, in, in a lot of ways, it's like growing up in a small town, but in a big city. And did you, as grow, growing up in that environment, did, you, did it strike you as it being weird? Uh, how did it affect yeah, you? Yeah, it did after a point, you know, when I became more aware of that because, you know, I had some Francophone friends and and I really saw the roots for the French, you know, soft revolution that happened in the 60s. Right. You know, because they kind of said, enough of this. I mean, when you turned on the radio when I was a kid, in, in French radio, it was either stuff from, like, copies of Fr- uh, f- stuff from France, like Chansonniers and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, or it was um, English hits translated into French. There was hardly any original stuff, and the culture was still really subdued. Hmm. And that's a, that's a whole other th- story with the church and yeah, yeah. all kinds of stuff. You know, I mean, they were basically second-class citizens in their own province. So basically, you know, they came. Uh, guys like Robert Charlebois came along and. There was a whole revolution that happened in, in Quebec, and and with that, there was a whole musical thing that happened too. You know, mm-hmm. where they started, you know, being uh, coming out with original uh, French music, and there was a whole slew of great musicians, a Villamard Blues Band, and all these people, and um, a band called Tubabu. I remember they were really great, um, but. You see, before then, there was an English music scene, which uh, Donald K. Donald, when mm-hmm. he was a really young guy, he would work out of his mother's basement, and he'd book a whole series of high school dances and, like, saw cops and this kind of thing. And if you were uh, one of, like, maybe 10 or 11 bands, you worked all the time doing that thing. And I worked with one band for a little while that did that kind of thing. And uh, But then when the French thing started really happening... Um, if you were not a francophone, your chances of getting into that were very slim. I only know like two people who kind of crossed over. Uh, so when did you start, when did you get into music? How did music come about in your life? 
Well, uh, like a lot of young guys, I probably thought if I played music at, you know, when I was about 13, I would think this, I'd probably get a lot of girls, you know, and, it was, and be popular. <laughs> right. So it was that, but it was also, I always had a great love of the music. My parents were big band fans. Mm. So when I grew up in the 50s, there was always like um, Count Basie and Glenn Miller and, you know, and uh, all, of, all of the great Duke Ellington. So I got to hear all that stuff. And, you know, I had, uh, I had some, you know, favorite records and it, it, it inspired me. It always says Lionel that. Hampton, that right. was a big one. And Lionel Hampton was a drummer as well. Which so, would make sense. Yeah. So I, I was always drawn to that. So then, you know, when I got into high school, I got into a band and, you know, I had bands with friends through high school and this kind of thing, playing at some sock ops. I went to a really rough high school in Montreal and I was just, you know, a little guy. And and you say rough because Oh, there were a, a lot, lot of, of punks. Yeah, a lot of punks at the high school. They would wait at the exit of the high school and they decide to beat up a different guy every day. <laughs> but because I played in bands at school dances and this kind of thing, they always left me alone. And huh. the rough guys would kind of, they thought it was cool to, you know, say hi to me instead of beating me up. So I thought that was, <laughs> hey. And you thought it was cool too. <laughs> yeah, I th- definitely thought it was cool too, you know. I mean, it, it was, um, in fact, there was one guy who ended up a little guy who was like a, a Chinese guy and he was like even smaller than me, but he was tough as nails. And he ended up uh, in jail for many years from manslaughter. And it was a really, it was wow. the high school I went to. It was the kind of school where if teachers screwed up somewhere, they get sent there. <laughs> so radical, we had some radical teachers, you know, and the vice principal was a guy with a, a wooden leg who'd walk around and he would just like be chomping at the bit to give guys the strap. I'll never forget that guy. Wow. He had white hair. <laughs> and you'd see him and man. And I was trying to grow my hair too. So you grow your hair and like put it down the back of your shirt. And <sighs> so when did you decide or how did the decision come about that you pursued music as a career? Okay, well I came to Toronto. Why did you come to Toronto? I went to Ryerson. Oh, okay. Okay. For radio and television. Wow. And before, way before Ryerson was a, a university, it was right. a technical institute. And and very well respected for the radio television program. Yeah. So I thought, hey, this is this would be something cool. You know, my parents thought this this was a good thing. Except I came, and it was like what, 1969, and I lived in kind of a student house, uh, right just south of Bloor on Spadina. And I think I only went to about two classes. <laughs> and I spent, I spent my whole time just like doing drugs. And I played guitar, oddly enough, because I, I could play guitar. When I, when I wanted to learn drums, my parents bought me a guitar. <laughs> and I had to get my own drums from Paper Roots. Okay, what so. did you buy? What was the first kit you had? Oh, God. It's a set of FKs. Ooh, I don't even know and those. They were terrible. Like back then, those 
entry level drums back then were really terrible because the the shells were like balsa wood. Mm-hmm. They weren't like real wood, and they would fall apart, <laughs> and they sound they would sound terrible. So those were the and nowadays all the drums are really good. Yeah, student drums, everything is like very decent, you know. But it was so bad. So you know. So you learned the guitar, or you played the I, guitar? Yeah, I played guitar. So and I, you know, then I started, you know, hanging out. I was hanging out in Rochdale, and you know, I'd find myself playing guitar at parties and, uh, and. And then for those who don't know Rochdale, Rochdale was basically the party place, right? Oh yeah, it was it's the it drug was a place. Free university, right? And it was like, um, you know, the whole building had its own security, and there was like you know, tons of, uh, of drugs in there and music and like alternative culture stuff going on. And it got out of hand eventually and it got closed down. But it was really pretty wild. And I lived around the corner from it. So I got involved with all these people and it's, I started, you know, it was just that period when I was in Toronto and, that I was, you know, playing guitar. And what was, kind of stuff would you have been playing? Blues, roots, R&B, you okay. know, rock and roll. But, you know, definitely a lot of blues. And um, I had a great time. Oh, yeah. But do you remember any of it? No, I'm yeah, just kidding. I do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember it, you know. Oddly enough, they say if you're, you know, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. But <laughs> no, I remember everything. I remember going to see the... There was an incredible John Lennon Yoko Ono concert mm-hmm. at Varsity Stadium, which was like just a few blocks from my house. Right. And I'll never forget that. I was right near the front and I saw that whole concert and it was totally bizarre. Okay, I was told you also went to Woodstock. That was another story, yeah. I went to Woodstock because we went to like a group of four of us, three friends, and the guy borrowed his, his brother's car was this like big old Impala convertible or something. And we drove down to Atlantic City. There was Atlantic City Pop Festival. Right, yeah. And it, we had such a great time. And, and there was like 50,000 people there. And it was in a racetrack. And it was, you know, it was great, you know. And there was a lot of the same bands were playing, except for Hendrix and a few others, you know. And there we heard about the Woodstock Festival. So we, we had such a good time. We said, okay, well, we're going to come back in a month. We're going to drive down and we're going to go to Woodstock. So we bought tickets in Atlantic City and we drove down to Woodstock and we got there like on a Thursday morning and set up our tent and everything and everything was cool. And, and then uh, it became just absolute insanity because, of course, it ended up being 500,000 people. Right. It ended up raining and... Yeah. It was mud, and there was no toilets. There was no food. There was nothing. It was just not a not a great time. I mean, the music. There was some great music. Do you remember? What do you remember musically from that experience? Santana, Hendrix. We stayed right to the end oh, because okay. you couldn't you couldn't leave. <laughs> there was no he, way you could go anywhere because it was all blocked. Right. There were a million cars. All the roads were like full of cars. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't drive through the woods. But by that time Hendrix played, there weren't that many people in, in front of the stage, right? Um, I mean, a lot of people had left somehow. Yeah, but, you, but we couldn't leave. We, <laughs> we tried to leave, you know. But we stayed, and we didn't leave till like... The, Hendrix kind of played at around dawn on Monday yeah. morning. And we couldn't get out of there till like four in the afternoon. You know, oh. 
And so, under those horrible conditions, do you have good memories of Woodstock or horrible? Uh, well, compared to Atlantic City, it was like night and day. You know, I mean, the beginning of the festival was great, and then it quickly deteriorated. Hmm. I mean, think about it. You know, you can't. You know, you got to go and you know, if you got to go and have a shit, you go to the woods. You know, right? I mean, that that was the least of it. I mean, you know, had, had, trying to find some food and water, the basic necessities, right? right. Yikes. Yeah. So at this point, are you playing in a band? Are you playing, are you just playing the guitar? Yeah, because I, I, yeah, I'm playing in a band. I'm playing drums. When I go back to Montreal, I play drums. And I, I played in a, in a few bands around Montreal and I'm playing professionally at that point. So I've decided at that point, I figured, you know, I'll just play with bands and see how long it lasts, you know? No, kind of like the famous quotes in the Beatles are interviewed, you know, I said, well, you know, I'm going to do this for Ringo. I'll, I'll do this for a year and a half and then I'll have all my hairdressing salons, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was that kind of deal in my own head, on my own level, right? right? I figured, OK, I'll do this and then maybe I'll, you know, I'll go back to school and I'll find something to do, you know, and, and do that. But um, it just lasted, you know, and this I've was into different bands and. Yeah, and you've played with a lot of people, but back then, when when you first started out, is there yeah. anybody that I would know or? Not really. Uh, you know, I had some. I played with local bands. Uh, I had a couple of local bands. I had. I don't know if you know Jerry Markman, but he lives here mm. now, and he's a he was a great guitar player. And I had some bands with him in Montreal, and um, and um, mainly blues based rock. Blues based, um, yeah. Like blues-based kind of original material, uh, but it was always kind of blues and R&B. You know, I was always like a big soul music guy. Mm -hmm. Like in my neighborhood, with my friends, James Brown was actually bigger for us. Got us more excited than the Beatles. Hmm. Not that I didn't love the Beatles, yeah, but yeah. James Brown, we used to go around and try to dance like him. You know, How that we would call out. it fancy footwork. Yeah. Well, and definitely. we could, and we would try and we, we thought James Brown was the absolute coolest thing, you know, that we. So ever in a bit, seen. we're going to ask you to just do a demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good, I'll tell you that. No, I was never that good at it. But you kept busy enough with the various bands playing. Yeah, the bars well, you and know, stuff. eventually, um, Montreal became such a, a small scene for me. It was so hard to make a living, and I'd heard about Toronto being like. You know, and I had been there already. Right. So I had a couple of connections. And um, so I ended up getting a gig with Jim Eaves when I was still living in Montreal. And I would play with Jim. And he was a very interesting guy. He, he played kind of um, stuff like Lambert Hendricks and Ross and like kind of early jazzy kind of bluesy stuff. Mm -hmm. And I played in a trio with him. And we played all over Ontario. We played in Toronto. And um, so I got to know more people in Toronto and this kind of thing. And then I ended up um, through a bass player that I knew, uh, a guy named Mike Love. He told me about a gig that I could possibly get, which was David Wilcox's first band. Hmm. So I ended up getting a gig in David Wilcox's first band, the Teddy Bears. Right. I mean, he played in lots of other bands, but this was his own solo thing, right? And so I decided, okay, I'm moving to Toronto. So I, I moved to Toronto, 
and I played with him, and that was a great band, and um, opened up a lot of a lot of doors for me because I got to meet a lot of people around Toronto, and mm-hmm. and in those days Toronto was a boomtown. And you're playing for original main, music. You're playing mainly the Young Street Strip, or are you playing? No, everywhere there was like a whole circuit downtown. You know, there was the Horseshoe, there was the Alma Combo, Larry's Hideaway. Um, there were there were clubs in the um, in the suburbs, like in Scarborough and different areas. You know, right. that was they were all on the circuit. They were all booked by the same agents. They were all six night gigs. And then, you know, uh, they were all union gigs. And, you know, basically, if you compared like the, what the cost of living was back then, mm-hmm. you made like a really, really good salary. You know, and, and you were protected by the union, you know. And right. you, so, you know, there were very few ripoffs going on for clubs that wouldn't pay you and this kind of thing because everything was contracted. And it was, uh, it was great. And people would be lined up on a Monday night to go see music mm-hmm. at all of these bars. I mean, that was the demographic back yeah, then. Yeah. It was the age demographic. People, you know, 19, 20-year-olds and, and 22. I mean, that's what people did. They went to hear live music and drink beers uh, in, all over Toronto. And it was fantastic. And you could work seven days a week. How long did you stay in that band for? Oh, the teddy bears? Yeah. There was only a couple of years. That's where I met Terry Wilkins and, you know, and David Baxter was in the band and, you know, Colin Linden was in the band for a brief period. His very first time he played electric guitar on stage really? in the band was there with David Wilcox. And did you record with David? Not really. We went in to do a weird recording once that Terry didn't play bass on, but nothing ever came of that. It was all just live stuff. Hmm. And, um, I mean, at the time, David was into this very strange Eastern religion, religious trip. Right. And and he was married to a very unusual woman at the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm being very diplomatic here. <laughs> <laughs> so... He had all kinds of offers to do stuff, but he was, you know, he was making really good money around Toronto. And um, so he didn't do anything till later. Right. Okay. Much later when he started doing the the whole, you know, the college circuit and all of that stuff. So I didn't do any recording with him. Did you do any recording outside? Like, what was the first recording you were involved with? God, that's a very good question. <laughs> I- I did. I did do a bunch of stuff. You know, the people would get me in to do Nancy Simmons. I can remember that. Hmm. Uh, I did some stuff with Jackson Hawk, and I actually ended up playing with Jackson Hawk after David Wilcox. Right. I did that for about a year. So was it easy when when you left the band to find another band? Get oh yeah, there was all kinds of stuff going on. You know, it was a real. It was a. a it was a real boomtown compared to Montreal. Mm-hmm. As an English musician, it was like. Fantastic. And in your mind, you're thinking, this is great. I can play six or seven nights a week. I'm making decent money. This will last forever. Or was there a goal that you said, you know, it would be really nice if I got a band together or whatever? Well, the goal was just to keep going and to, uh, you know, and to keep playing music and to play with good people. and Save enough money for hair salons. 
Yeah, no, that didn't cross my mind. <laughs> no, I was, you know, you're involved in something like that. You're so busy, you think, well, this is going to really, you know, this is this is going somewhere. Right, but were you thinking, I would like to re- record or be on a record? Or? Oh, absolutely. Okay. You know, I definitely wanted everybody, that was the goal. I want to be in a recording band. Right. I want to have, like, you know, I want to be in a band that's touring and and uh, you're touring their albums and, and this kind of thing. It was the day of record company support and and you know and all that kind of thing and so you know it was that was the goal absolutely and was was canadian aces is that the first band or well the canadian aces kind of came about um i played with the rock and deltoids mm-hmm. and that was uh, a band with scott Cushney, professor piano mitch lewis and terry wilkins and myself and we we kind of did Lots of great 50s R&B and that kind of thing, you know, and uh, classic stuff. And we used to play at a place called the Midwich Cuckoo. Mm-hmm. And the people at Midwich Cuckoo opened up um, another room and they wanted it to be like a 40s swing thing. And we said, yeah, let's do that. And I was playing with the, I also play with the original Sloth Band. You know, this is bringing back memories because I played with a lot of bands at one time. Right. It was like, you know, okay, I'll do this. Okay, I'll do this. And you juggle everything. And in the original Sloth Band, uh, the Honolulu Heartbreakers, they were like the three women who who sang with them. Right. And so we decided, okay, well, we'll put together a swing band and we'll get the Heartbreakers in there and we'll put a repertoire together. And that became just so much fun that we just continued doing it. So what and we did the deltoids too, but you know, we did um, deltoids change personnel from you know over the years, and but the uh, you know Professor Pano and the Canadian Aces had a pretty good run. We were ahead of our times in terms of the record labels. They didn't know what to do with the band. Mm-hmm. I can remember like A and R guys from Columbia and these people. They were like regular fans. They'd come down to see us play all the time. And they loved it, but they said, you know, we just, we don't know what to do with it. Right. You know? It was before Brian Setzer and and various other people came out with like, you know, the thing. swingy kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. But it was, a, it was a great band. So what's it like, this is a little off topic, but with the Sloth Band, original Sloth Band, I mean, you still play with Ken. All the time. And, and yeah. Chris. I yeah. mean, it must be so, maybe not weird. What's it like to play <laughs> with somebody like Ken or Chris that you've played for 30 years? Is it, it more than that? Well, since 70, 78, 79, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So close to 40 years. Like yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Well, so when you get on the stage, does that, like now, I mean, I think you just played with Ken recently, right? Well, we did a, a sloth band reunion. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the first time since Tom Evans had passed away that we did the gig and it was absolutely magic you know but does it take you to a place way back when in some ways it does because you're playing the songs yeah that you played so but in a lot of ways it's like no time has lapsed hmm. you know and you're playing and it was actually better than ever because people you know people get better right the longer you do your craft you know i mean it's the same with you and everybody that does it you know i mean hopefully you're getting better at it you know and we played those songs i mean even though you know i mean it was 
some different people playing with us. Mm-hmm. We didn't have Tom. But the stuff sounded to me better than ever. Yeah. It was, and they're great songs. I mean, the songs are kind of the entities in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And the players are, you know, the players are who they are, but, you know, uh, their level of expertise, I guess, or proficiency on those songs, they hopefully get better, mm-hmm. you know. And Ken is amazing, you know, and Chris is incredible, you know. So it was, it was, it was great. So it's you, a buzz. I'm still buzzed from that show. <laughs> Would it happen again? I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe, you know, maybe next year. Yeah. People certainly came out. The place was like sold out and it was great. And was it easy to remember the songs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, you know. I I think a lot of musicians are like that, you know. I mean, I, I'd like to think that anyways. It is with me. Once a song goes in, it stays. Like I can go back and play a song. If you don't think about it, mm-hmm. you know, you sit down. It's there. It's really there. Though there's a different part when you're recording the song, you're doing like three or four songs in a day or more, um, you're using a different part of your brain mm-hmm. and it's more short term. So you learn that song and then it's almost gone. It's very interesting. That is that, interesting. And then, yeah, then, so then, you know, I forget when you're doing the recording things. If I come back the next day, I won't remember that song. <laughs> But if I'm actually learning a song in a band and playing it, man, I got it. You know, I can go back and remember the arrangements and details and that kind of thing. You know. So come yeah. the '80s, like you were pretty busy with lots of different yeah. projects. Yeah. And you were in Chilliwack to. Yeah, I did a stint in Chilliwack. Yeah. More rock. I that was uh, that was my kind of foray into arena rock and roll. So before that, you weren't playing arenas. Well, I did a little bit of that because I was in rough trade and, you know, it was even like, I think my first rough trade gig was at um, Maple Leaf Gardens. Oh. Opening for the tubes. Nice. You remember the tubes? Yeah, I love the tubes. Yeah. So that was my, I think it was my, one of my very first rough trade gigs in the 70s. I could have actually been there. Yeah, it was 1979 <laughs> or somewhere around yeah. there, 78. What I a did a couple of club gigs before then, but you know, so I did do some of that. But okay, like, so when you when you're thrown into that situation where you're playing at Maple Leaf Gardens, you're opening up for a band, but you're you're there playing in front of sixteen thousand people. Yeah, the first time, what is that like? Oh, it's definitely um, hard to control the adrenaline. You know, it's. <clears throat> I mean, you're still you're confident in that you know the stuff, right? But to be able to relax is very hard, you know. I mean, it. in fact, it's taken me many, many years to be able to relax playing drums, period. But when you're put in those situations, you're like, you're almost out of your mind. And you got, uh, you're, I mean, there's so much energy. Right. And it's like, whoa, you know. So to control then- yourself. And, and you know that... What really separates the men from the boys in playing music is the ability to relax. And the more relaxed you are, the better it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I often thought, boy, if I can only go back and play some of those gigs 
at my level of relaxation these days. <laughs> right. It would have yeah. been like killer. But mm. while you're playing like a 45 minute set or an hour and a half show, yeah. do you not at one point relax? or do you? Well, you relax more, but still, you know, it's still not where it should be. And same thing with Chilliwack. I presume you were on a couple or a number of tours with them. You were there. Yeah, we, and we did. I did a lot of touring with with Chilliwack. A lot of opening act gigs in the states. Right. Which is a whole other story, but you know, <laughs> playing in front of big crowds and sometimes crowds that were less than receptive. Oh yeah, I guess that as is an opening act. You know, sometimes hostile. You know, sometimes great, but sometimes. So hostile. I guess you can't relax on those gigs. Uh, no, because you have to be careful and watch out for uh, projectiles yeah, yeah. coming at your head. You know, we opened once uh, one gig for Ted Nugent, <laughs> and everybody said, you know, be careful. And it was like a huge crowd at some big old place, and I think it was the Cow Palace in mm, Chicago. Oh. Okay, maybe I don't know. Maybe I got that wrong. But it was a big old hall, huge hall. In Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget this because there was stuff being thrown on the stage because they, we weren't Ted Nugent. We weren't the same kind of thing. And you can't see it until it hits you. Well, <laughs> luckily, nothing did. But I looked to the side while I was playing and I got a glimpse of a beer bottle maybe about three feet from my head. Hmm. And that was a bit of a wake-up call. But what was that experience like to be touring with Chilliwack trying to break into the States? Because they had a, some of a, somewhat of a following in, in Canada by then. Yes, and the gigs we did in Canada were all headline gigs right. pretty well. So what was or, that like to... I mean, I know you play all sorts of different places, and, and whether it be with Fathead, you could be playing in front of 10,000 people at a festival, and next week you'd be playing at a, a small bar in front of 150 people, yeah. whatever. Yeah. But what was it like to have this experience of headlining... In arenas, and then having to open up for other people and not get any respect, and well, that's that's hard. That can be hard, you know, a little bit of disillusioning. Yeah, but but you kind of expect it in some situations, and not all the gigs. I remember we we did a bunch of dates opening for the Doobie Brothers, and they were fantastic. Mm -hmm. And the guys in the Doobie Brothers were amazing people, and all that kind of thing. And so that you you'd have gigs like that that'd be great, you know. Yeah, just. Really, you know, it, it would balance out. But it was all great experience, you know. So around the same time of Rough Trade and Chilliwack, you also played with Rafi. Yes. And, and not, yeah, just I did. One, not just, I mean, you recorded a number of albums and yeah. toured with them. Yeah. And great I, tours, too. I can imagine. But that must be so different. And I, and I think big soft sea theaters, I would think. Yes. He played, he wouldn't play arenas, of course. No. But he played big soft seed theaters, and I was doing it at the same time as as Rough Trade. And, <laughs> the, and the 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 opposites of Rough Trade and Rafi and Rafi for I don't oh, know yeah. why people would know, but Rafi is a, a children's songwriter, right? And a huge, yeah, probably the biggest kids performer in the states, much bigger than he was in Canada. Oh, really? Yeah, like he he was at you know he was uh in inaugural parades a couple of presidential parades and he's almost a generic term in the states when you say kids act they'll bring up raffi right know? so you know? what was that experience like oh it was great because um well i'll give you a kind of uh, the road crews were funny because 
both road crews who knew that I, you know, I did rough, uh, rough trade and Raffy, they ended up calling uh, some of them would call both gigs like Raff Trade <laughs> and Preschool Confidential, right? <laughs> and I always got to, you know, that would always crack me up because they they'd say stuff like that, and they would. But the Raffy tours were like, it was. I mean, musically, it got to be kind of, you know, I mean, it was very, very subdued and all the great musicians, like Ken Whiteley was on the gig, you know, right. and then Dennis Penrith, like a, a fantastic bass player. And the songs were, well, it was all quality, but it was, you know, um, Shake Your Sillies Out and all the songs for little kids. And, but these and little kids were just like... They loved it. Yeah, they're captivated by yeah. everything. And it was did. very low key. That was Rafi's thing. He would, you know... It was very calm as opposed to getting the kids to jump around like a Vegas thing, right? Right. Very, very calm. And and parents loved to come because they could listen to the music and, you know, they could actually enjoy the music. It was kind of very folk-based. Mm-hmm. He was a folk singer originally, so. And probably not a lot of late nights. Well, that was, that was I'm getting to that because that was the great thing. Because during the week, we'd play one show from 7 to maybe 7.50 mm-hmm. at night. And then we'd have the whole rest of the night to go out and have a nice meal and go check out music. And on the weekends, the shows would be, maybe we'd do two shows in the afternoon and they'd never be more than 50 minute shows. And they'd be over and you'd get the whole rest of the time. It was all first class touring in beautiful hotels and, you know, first class tour buses and mostly flying everywhere with a really good road crew and, you know, the money was really good and everything was fantastic. And on Sunday mornings, Ken Whiteley would always find um, where the best gospel church was. Mm-hmm. And we'd go out to like a gospel service in Oakland or, you know, Watts or someplace, you know. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Real it was deal. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get, you know, I had a great time, you know. It was really, really good. And I mean, it was not the kind of grueling touring that a rock and roll band does right? where you kind of, you know, you're in a different airport or you're on the bus, sleeping on the bus. And, um, you know, after doing a couple of months of that, you, you, you know, no matter how young and in, in shape you are, you kind of get, you get a little bit tired. What do you think? I mean, you've, you've experienced all these different parts of the music industry and parts of touring and, and different modes of touring. What was your favorite? My favorite? Yeah. Like what, 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 felt good to you was it traveling with Chilliwack was it doing rough trade I liked it all you know I think it's really exciting to go to a different place it's got a different completely different vibe and and put a show on like that you know I mean and 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 the energy is great and and the great thing is is when you've got a little bit of time and the Raffi thing was great for that so you could explore where you were Mm -hmm. I loved like traveling is a real passion of mine Right. I love to travel, you know, and experience different cultures in the world. And and I've only scratched the surface, you know. But So you get a little bit of that with Rafi. Right. Because we would be, you know, he'd put us up, uh, you know, maybe we would tour in California and Arizona in the winter. And, and he'd put us up at a resort in the Arizona for like five days where we get to bring our girlfriends or our wives down and... It was it was really good, you know. Or we, you know, we'd be in New York and we'd be there for maybe, you know, like five days and maybe do three shows and we'd have all this time to 
you know, trip around and, and see what's going on and really get into it. And did you I did a, sorry, I did a great tour once where I did this album. Um, you were asking me who I recorded with here. I did that out al- a couple of out al- or one album with a guy named Jack Grunsky, mm-hmm. who was a huge star in, uh, Austria, Germany, and Switzerland. He was in the sixties. How'd you wind up with that album? Like, uh, was well, the there was a, I, I I knew this guy who was the producer of the album and he started up his own recording studio and, um, and I got hired to play in this guy's album. So we recorded this album and it got released by a record company over in Germany. And then we got brought over to do uh, a tour and it was like two and a half months on the road by car, like everywhere in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. You know, I mean, there's some weird gigs there. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, some very kind of Fellini-esque kind of gigs <laughs> where the opening act might have been like a, a 55-year-old woman in, uh, in like a circus outfit with trained dog acts and mm-hmm. stuff like that. We had some of that going on. I think she opened for Ted Nugent. Yeah. <laughs> she could have. She might have, like, maybe her dogs could have run interference with the beer <laughs> bottles, right? But it was um, it, but it was fantastic because, mm-hmm. you know, I really got to experience those countries and play in all these little towns and see all this great stuff. And, you know, so to me, that was, like, the most fantastic way to see a country because you're not a tourist. Right. You're working there. And you're meeting people and um, you're getting to, you know, you go to people's homes, you get invited for dinner and that's how you really get to know a the place, culture, yeah, right? Yeah. It's not like staying in the hotel and going to the restaurant. You have to get out and meet the people. Mm-hmm. So it's an already an open door. Did your playing style change drastically with the different bands that you played for? Well, I got, well, every, every different style of music, um, you got to you know, uh, learn about it mm-hmm. more by playing with the people. You know, when I had, in the 80s, I had a band called Compass. And that was a band that was like um, led by a Trinidadian guy named Moja. And there, so it was a mix of local musicians and Caribbean musicians. So it was kind of world music. But ahead of its time, it, there was no such thing as world music at that point. But getting into that style, I mean, because of the guys, the, the Caribbean musicians, I mean, I got like a, a great education on how to play soca music and reggae and properly, mm-hmm. you know, by, no, no, do this. This is how it is. This is how it feels, you know, do it like this. So I was always into those styles. I mean, I firmly believe you can't, play a style of music unless you're a fan of the music right i mean you get a jazz like a great jazz musician and he doesn't like rock and roll or blues he just doesn't get it right Mm -hmm. because you have to to get the essence of what the music is you have to be a fan so i never played a style of music that i wasn't a fan of but i got to be better at it but how did you not get pigeonholed like you know, if you did a lot of R&B and blues, how was it that you could actually get a Rafi gig or, you know, world music That's gig or whatever? 
Well, I mean, it's who you know and uh, who's doing what. Like, I got the Raffi gig because of Ken Whiteley, and I mm-hmm. worked with Ken Whiteley in the Sloth Band. And he knew I could play the folk music because I would play folk festivals with Ken, and the Sloth Band did a bunch of different styles. So he knew I could do that stuff, and he was producing Raffi's first stuff. So he naturally got me to come and do it. And, you know, it's not so much... I guess if I was a front man, you would you get pigeonholed, right? You know, because okay, this is like this guy's Bruce Springsteen. You're not going to call him to do, you know, a soca gig, you mm-hmm. know, because he's Bruce Springsteen. You're not, you know, is he's Bruce Springsteen? But I'm a, you know, when you're a bass player and a drummer, particularly, you're kind of in the background more. You know, I always say, you know, us guys are in the engine room. Mm-hmm. Nobody really sees us, but we're you know we're down there. We're getting commands and we're making the engine go. So, but you're you're a little bit like that. You're, you know. But then again, people call you. I remember after I left Chilliwack, I I was getting calls from those kind of bands that like you know that were wanted needed a drummer and they say oh well we'll fly you out to Saskatoon or we'll do this you know. And what did you think about that? I mean, was that the route you wanted to pursue? Or no, no, in fact, one of the reasons I, I wasn't in Chilliwack anymore was because um, I didn't want to move to Vancouver because mm. Toronto was so great and I was involved in like, I don't know, all these different projects. And I just couldn't see myself living out there because I knew once, once that gig ended, that was, yeah, you and it was going to end and it ended for me, you know, sooner than later. Uh, if I had been out there, I would have been. I would have had to move back. Just there wasn't enough there for me to do, you know. So the other thing that I think you're also known for is in the Toronto blues scene. Yeah, that you played a lot of backup gigs or yeah. sideman gigs for a lot of uh, traveling musicians, like yeah. Eddie Clean, Henderson, and yeah, you did an album with John Hammond. Yeah. So tell me about that experience of your contribution to the blues playing at the Brunswick House or whatever. Oh, those were so you Basically you and Terry, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It was through the uh, Derek Andrews connection mm-hmm. and Harborfront and all of that, you know. And um, those are fantastic years. I mean, it was almost kind of the dream scenario because you got Derek Andrews, who's such a huge music fan and a blues fan and everything else, you know, mm-hmm. who ended up, he was, he was managing or he was booking um, Edgerton's, which turned into The Edge at the time, right. which was a really great music bar. And this guy, Jordy Sharp, who is um, part of the family that owned Four Seasons Hotels, who are, Izzy Sharp and those people, mm-hmm. and they're big arts. They're arts crazy, that family. They're big supporters of the arts. So he wanted, this guy, Jordy, wanted to get involved and open up a really great music bar. Right. Okay? So to his credit, what he did is he went and worked at Edgerton's. You know, I think he may have even started as a busboy. I mean, he worked there, and he got to know Derek, and he kind of learned the business, from the ground up and then his family bought the Brunswick house and Derek booked the Brunswick house and in those days a lot of the touring musicians the blues players 
they couldn't really afford to tour, tour the band. So they'd pick up a band everywhere. We're talking late 70s, early 80s? Like we're where? talking into the 80s. 80s this okay. didn't happen until the 80s. Okay. So Derek, you know, he needed a band. So he, you know, and, and he knew myself and we knew Terry and we were all friends and we did gigs for, for, for Derek, you know. And um, he would bring us in. And it was great. He would give us the first call and, you know, anybody that needed a band uh, that came in. And it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, we got to play with really great. And for six nights Mm -hmm. and more than once. And was there rehearsal involved or not? Not. (laughs) As a matter of fact, the first time uh, we heard, okay, we've got to play with Eddie Cleanhead Vincent. So me and Terry are all like psyched up and oh, okay, we get together. We listen to all of his records and we have a little rehearsal with ourselves. You know, right. okay, well, we'll do this and we'll make notes and all this stuff. And So is it just the two of you and him? Is it no, there, no, there were other people playing. Uh, in fact, um, the great Jane Vasey was oh, on okay. the first time we played with her uh, and she was pretty ill at that point, but she did the gig and... Um, I can't. I think it might have just been like the three of us backing him up, or maybe there was a guitar player. I can't even remember. But I remember that on the Monday, the gig would start on a Monday night, and you know we get there around you know six o'clock and and meet Mister Cleanhead and shake his hand, and we said, you know, great to meet you, Eddie, and you know we've and we give him the list of songs, and we did this, this and and he look <laughs> he look at us and. And said, there's only one thing you got to know. He said, when I wave my fingers like this, that means a stop. And when I <laughs> wave my fingers like this, it means something else. And, and he says, I only got two questions for you guys. He says, uh, where, can, where can I play golf and where can I get the best reefer in town, right? <laughs> That's all we had to do. And that was it, you know. And, but how easy was it to put together a good show based on that? Well, I mean, there were moments when, you know, because uh, where it got a little loose, but overall it got to be pretty good. I mean, it was a little that particular style because Eddie would do the jazz stuff mm-hmm. as well. Like the blues stuff was never a problem. Right. We could do the blues stuff in our sleep. and But no, he'd get into like some tunes and because and he was an old school guy too. Oh, yeah, I remember John Sheard was in a later gig too with us. But, you know, in the old guys, when they tell you the key, they put like f- three fingers down and that would mean a particular key and there would be different signals. And Terry, of course, being the drummer, I didn't have to know yeah. that. So I was lucky, you know, I was like, uh, I got off, you know, mm-hmm. scot-free. But Terry didn't know what the hell the guy was, was talking about. So there were a couple of times when it was a little bit weird. But Eddie was just such a fantastic guy and... You know, and we, we learned a lot from him, you know. And he's the guy, actually, he taught me that, you know, he said that your first 30 years of professional playing is your apprenticeship. And then you start to relax after that. And now, I, you know, I look back, and getting back to what I said before, I look back on that, and he was so right about that, you know. Well, and I presume it's not a case of, oh, I get it now. Like, there's probably not one moment. But was, was there a moment where you thought, you looked around and thought, okay, now it makes sense. I am relaxed or I play differently. 
Well, yeah, but it is a gradual thing because, you know, the more you do it, the more relaxed you are, and, and nothing can nothing you throw at me now will phase me at all, right? Right. And, um, but I, you know, I, re- I reflect on what Eddie told me back then. I can't remember the first time I, I realized it, but I've realized it more than once, you know, and I thank him, and I say, you know, I mean, Eddie, Eddie, you were so right about that, you mm-hmm. know. It's that wisdom. Because I played with Eddie, he was 70, roughly. And I was like in my 30s. So to, even when you're in your 30s, to get to a point where you can back up some of the finest blues musicians, touring musicians, I mean, what did you have? How did you learn the blues as a rhythm section beforehand that got you good enough to actually back up people like Roy Buchanan, John Hammond, Eddie Clear and had been well, some whatever. Well, again, I was a fan, so I've always listened to blues. I I was turned on to listening to blues, like a lot of guys in my neighborhood, by people like Paul Butterfield, like the first Paul Butterfield album, right? Or the Yardbirds or something, you know. I, it would come out, or even even like the Stones' Twelve by Five record, because I, mm-hmm. I'd hear these tunes and then I'd see who wrote that. I said, Muddy Waters. Wow, wow, that's a pretty cool name, you know. And I'd start to check that out. Right. And so I got involved with that. And I'd listen to that. And I'd played in some bands. And we'd play those songs. So I learned how to play the basic grooves. Right? But is that and, the same as playing? I mean, we're talking world-class musicians here who are coming through to the Brunswick House. Was it as simple as that? Or did you realize at that point, I got a lot more to learn? In a lot of ways, it is as simple as that because you, you, you realize that it's not rocket science, that these guys are just laying it down the way that they could do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like Sunnyland Slim used to tell me that um, he would laugh at all, like the blues, he, you know, the blues police, we called it, you know. People would come out and say, no, that's not the way it should be played and this and he would just laugh at all the like the the blues purists because he, I mean he would he would say we didn't even call it the blues we were just playing music and he said we were just trying to sound like people like Duke Ellington and but we couldn't do any better than we did hmm. you know and it was just what it was you know because you know a lot of grooves evolved from swing you know it's basically what a blues shuffle is is an, an evolved groove from a swing groove you know? right so. What it did do is gave you confidence when you got up there and you played the shuffles that you knew and that kind of thing with a guy like Sonny Land Slim or Eddie or and uh, you know and and they would say yeah that feels really good so playing music is so much about confidence mm-hmm. and and confidence that other people you're playing with have in you even if you're the most accomplished musician out there. Um, and you're playing, you get thrown in a situation and people are questioning what you're doing and don't have confidence in what you're doing, it's going to, your playing will suffer a lot. Mm-hmm. You have to have the confidence of the people with you. If you've got that confidence, you can do anything. Well, there are musicians, I mean, I'm sure there were tons of musicians who you got to play with, got a phone call on the Friday for the next week and you were totally blown away by it. But can you name some musicians that... You just couldn't believe you were actually sharing the stage with? Oh, there's one that I think about a lot of times. It's Dr. John mm. Mac Ravenac. 
oh my god that was that was just a dream come true because I was such a fan I was a fan of his at the Atlantic City Pop Festival wow. I saw him play as Dr. John the Night Tripper and that album the doctor his very first album was a huge hit in my circle of friends we just couldn't believe it and I got into I was very much into New Orleans music and New Orleans R&B and in later years and you know, and but I was also told that first album was also very different. Oh yeah, it was for sure, absolutely. It was really out there, and it was great. You know, it had a lot of uh, you know Latin things and like weird overtones of different music. You know, my daughter and her friends, and she's twenty two. They think that's one of the best albums they've ever heard because hmm. it's it's so different. Right. But I got into you know, I mean, I was into his. The stuff that he did where it was more the R&B, uh, New Orleans R&B stuff or, or Professor Longhair stuff, right? And I absolutely love that stuff. I've always loved Latin music, you know, and there's a real connection between those things, right? Mm -hmm. And um, when I got a call, it was Derek Andrews again. You know, we need a band to back up Dr. John, you know, and uh, I was oh, man. So, I mean, I really listened to a lot of stuff so I, I could really, you know, and I was nervous actually about being able to play those grooves because I'd actually never done them like that before. And was this a week-long gig or a one-off? No, that was a one night. Okay. It was a one night. I think it was at the Horseshoe the first time I played with them. And, and was there rehearsals? <laughs> uh, not no. <laughs> really. You know what? I don't think so. There might have been a sound check. I mean, he was... You know, he was heavily into heroin at the time. And right. he had, like, his girlfriend was his road manager, and she kind of, like, shepherded him around. And he was a really nice guy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he didn't really do rehearsals or anything like that. Now, the guys in the band, we, I think we might have gotten together, if I remember correctly, and gone over some stuff, you know. And we'd all listen to it, and we knew what the grooves should be like. But until you play it with, like, you know, here's a guy, he's, like, a master of... Mm -hmm. that stuff you know he learned from professor Longhair, and you know he, he knew the neville brothers and you know i mean he played with all those guys you know right. the top new orleans guys so i'm thinking well boy i better get that get that new orleans groove down you know i mean <laughs> it's a and when the you know it was just so much fun and he had a great time and i had so much fun that night that the back of my head felt like it was going to explode it was that kind of thing. Hmm. It was like, oh my God. Just like so excited, you know, to do that gig. And I got to play with them a few other times. Oh, nice. You know, which was so much fun. And I actually could understand what he said by maybe the second time I played with him. Because <laughs> he'd tell stories. Yeah. But between the heroin and the, and the New Orleans, accent, serious New yeah. Orleans accent, you could only get every fourth word or something, you know. It would be the... What did, what did he say? What did he say, Terry? You know, and just... You know. So I have the greatest admiration for him. My story with Dr. John was I got a chance to interview him once. And after oh. the interview, he asked, he just kind of kept me there and said, tell me a little bit about your parents. And, you know, I've probably done three, four, five hundred interviews with musicians. And most of them, it's it's there's a time constraint and there is... You know, it's basically geared towards me interviewing them. And when it's done, you leave. Yeah. Um, but he was very insistent that I stick around. And because he wanted to know 
a little bit about me. Which very cool. Which is really cool because no it doesn't happen very often, yeah. and and it, and not that it should, because when it did happen, I thought, oh my god, this is weird, and and I actually had to cut off that part. I mean, I stick stuck around for twenty minutes, but I had to leave because I had to do another interview. <laughs> but I just remember thinking, oh my god, I don't know if anybody else has ever asked me about my mom, you know. And it was just like very he took cool. the time, and it wasn't about what I did; it was about your family and. Where mm. you come from, and it was just, it was you know, that doesn't surprise me because thinking of where he grew up mm -hmm. in such a melting pot, and what he's his heritage is like Eastern European, isn't it? Something like that, yeah. Rabinac, yeah. Uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe. I can't remember where. I mean, I read his book, so I should remember, but I don't. But like, it was such a melting pot, and mm -hmm. you know, here's a guy from an Eastern European family growing up, growing up in New Orleans hanging out like primarily with black musicians and in like the, you know, the funkiest of clubs in New Orleans and like being like mentored by Professor Longhair and all this yeah, great I think it's stuff. Crazy. I mean, he's so open to cultures and he's so interested in it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. He's always, you know, and I always thought, you know, I mean, he told some great stories and, I thought, you know, he was a great person, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. when I, you know, I, you know, when I played for him, I mean, he always had time for everybody and, you know, he was... And that book, book is, like, his life is crazy. I love that book. Oh, it was, no, it's amazing, but you look at the life he led, it's just, like, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You like, know, both stories, from a musical, historic... Stories from the trenches yeah. and yeah. from some of the, like, one of the best music scenes most influential mm -hmm. music scenes for all the music that I love, right. you know, that, that there ever was, you know, and it's, it, it's, it's truly great, you know, and that, I love that book. Yeah. I may read that again at some point, you know, but I think I will too. Mm -hmm. So you've had, but you know, now just having discussed your career, like it's crazy the people you've got to play with and things you got to do and places you've been to. Like, I guess you would have never imagined that this was the path you, or the path you've chosen would have taken you to these places. That's right. I probably never would have imagined that. And um, it almost seems like now that, I mean, it's not that big a deal because it's just stuff that I've done. Yeah. And got to play, you know, I'm, I, I consider myself very fortunate. Was there ever you a know? point where you thought, I don't know if I can do this music thing? Or was there ever a low or... Mm -hmm. Like not, really. Doubt, no? not really, no. Not really, because um, there's something that I call freelancer's disease, mm -hmm. which people get, and whoever is a freelancer, people in the film business, whatever you're doing, and it's a paranoia of not being able, this is your last job, and you're never going to get another one mm -hmm. after that. You don't know where the next paycheck is coming from, you know. And I learned to deal with that, you know, pretty early on and, 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 and relax you, about it. How did you deal with it? What would be, well, what's the secret? Well, just by having faith. That you're and, good enough, somebody would call you. And just, well, not even that, you know, yeah, but also that, you know, that, the, you know, the gods out there or whatever, you know, the great spirit was going to, I was going to be, you know, I'd be able to get something, you know, you'd be able to get something to do it. So I was never, I was never driven by that. You know, there are a lot of musicians and other people that are so driven by that that they're always out there, 
and they're like they do some stuff that's that's questionable mm-hmm. unprofessional to get you know maybe other people's gigs or something like that you know and because of that paranoia they're so afraid they're not going to be able to work or get that you know get but, that next gig so there was never a prolonged dry spell for you no but having said that i'm certainly thankful that i'm at the place i'm at now and not a young person in today's scene mm-hmm. doing that because i couldn't do what i did then now right i wouldn't be able to make a living i would definitely have to be you know uh, working as a scenic painter in movies or whatever i i would have to do and and that's a difficult situation because playing six or seven nights a week and only doing that is what gets you a lot better. Mm-hmm. Anything that you do like that. Uh, and I always take my hat off to when I meet a young musician now who I th- think is great. And having to, uh, them having to be able to accomplish that in today's scene, I think is, is so amazing. Mm-hmm. It really, really is. So people being able to do that it's much. It's so tough now. It is so tough out there. You know, people aren't buying like CDs are dead, and right. you know the gigs are you know are really hard, especially if you're doing roots music and you're a band that's trying to do that. You know, and and even if you're not, if you even if you're a pop band, I mean, it's really difficult to get out there. Some are able to break through, and you know, very few are. And there's no record companies that are you know, um, supporting people like they used to. They may support the odd person after they sell a lot from YouTube or something, you know. Right. But it's it's such a different scene now. Well, the other thing you just said when when, we, when you first came in was now you're just doing gigs that you want to do. Yeah. So, you, you, you know, obviously you have the freedom to do that, but it must be nice to get to that point as well, that you're not having to do a gig just for the sake of getting some money. Yeah, now I do it for the musical fun because the money is always bad. You know, not all my gigs. I do, I <laughs> yeah. do a couple of things. You know, I'm doing this Motown review show that plays in Soft Cedars, mm-hmm. where it's a lot of fun. The band are all like people of my my peers are in the band, and they're all and all the the front singers and dancers and stuff. They're all like most of them are under thirty, <laughs> and they're really really good. You hang out with young people? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do, I do, and they're they're really talented, and playing great music. You know, I mean, to me, playing a great song is everything. You know, can I ask you? I know you've had you've experienced different levels of success, and I don't know if it's you know it's not superstardom, but you've worked all your life in in the field that you've chosen. You've played with some incredible musicians. How do you measure success personally? How do I measure success? Being able to just do what I'm doing, mm-hmm. you know, being able to do music and, uh, you know, play with people that I really respect and playing great songs. I mean, that is a level of, of success. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, if I, I often thought if I'd been doing what I, what I was doing in a place like L.A. or New York, I would be... I'd be doing like a whole other level of gigs, but maybe not. Who knows, you know? Um, But I'm certainly not bothered by the fact that, you know, I don't get phone calls from Eric Clapton or anything, you know? I mean, it is, it's who you know, you know? I mean, it's who, and it's who you're working with. And I just take it one gig at a time, you know? And, and, um, 
and I'm thankful to get out there and do a gig that's, like I said, with great musicians playing great songs in a location where people are listening. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I get a call, I'm in, uh, you go out to do a, a bar gig and there's nobody there or the people that are there are watching the hockey game or anything, there's no way I'm going to go back and do that gig. Right. For me, that's not what it's about. I want that interaction. Even if there's like 10 people there, I don't care. You know, it's really, I've learned that too from a lot of people, like a guy like Danny Brooks. It doesn't matter if he's playing to one person or like 10,000 people or at a rehearsal. It's always the same. Mm. There's no such thing as, as you're playing on a different level. And, oh, well, I'll do it better when we... You know, we do it in front of people or whatever like that. That is not where it's at. You're either doing it or you're not. But is that an easy thing to do? Well, it's not easy for a lot of people because it depends what your inspiration is. Yeah. Like a lot of young, like the people, young pop, rock and rollers, their inspiration is either the money or they're doing it um, to meet girls or guys or whatever they're into, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, that, that's a whole other thing. And that kind of drawing your inspiration from that is very limited because if those situations are not there, there's nothing to inspire you. But if you're inspired by the song, period, it's great. Like, that's why gospel music is so great. And I love to play gospel music because you're inspired by something greater than yourself mm-hmm. by playing the gospel music. And you're... and you know whether you believe it literally or not music is brings everybody to a different level that we can't explain so by that way i mean it's a connection to another level and but the inspiration comes from there and if the person that you're backing up or playing with or even the person that's not that's one of the sidemen is dragging their ass and they're not inspired it brings everything down mm-hmm. you're always down to that lowest level any team is as only as good as its weakest member, whether it be sports or music. Right. It's the same thing. Well, I, I want to thank you. This has been—I've known you for a while, but I've never really sat down and chatted. Yeah, with it's you been about, great. You know, you know I mean, we've seen baseball games together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, final question: Where does your love for baseball is that? Is that does that come from the Expos or? No, man, that comes way back. That comes from the fifties, and my dad taking me to see baseball games at Delormier Stadium and that was the farm team for um the Dodgers oh yeah okay and you didn't see no, no. that was long before okay, you know, that was yeah. you know that was yeah. long before me but I do remember seeing Chuck Connors who was the rifleman play first base <laughs> really so those of a certain age will remember the show the rifleman yes, I remember. and I can remember that and uh, when the rifleman, and I would ask my, hey, dad, or something, hey, wasn't that the, the first base? Man, you know, but that that gave me a love of baseball, and also, I had a lot of relatives in New York, mm-hmm. and my parents would bring me down to visit them, like three or four times a year. We would go down to New York, and we would go. We'd be taken to Yankee Stadium, and I was at games in like the fifties, Yankee Stadium, and you know. You have to see, you know, uh, Joe DiMaggio and, you know, I mean, maybe not registered at the time, but mm-hmm. looking back, yeah, you know, 
I saw some of those great guys, you know, play in it. And so I've always had a love of baseball. And now baseball's taken over from hockey because over the years I became disillusioned, like a lot of people, with mm-hmm. hockey and where it went. And because I was part, you know, I was a fan when it was the original teams and all that stuff, you know, and the games changed. But baseball to me is always like the game of baseball hasn't really changed the way the game of hockey's changed. Right. So it's always been a, and a real fascination for me. And, the, you know, there's so many levels to it. And it's, it's such a social sport, you know. For sure. You can sit there and talk and yeah. you have a beer and, and, you know, discuss what's going on and really get into the game. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful game. It is. It's a, it's a, the I best. love it. We will have to go see another game together. I would love it, you know. You know, I think I may be able to get tickets again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. It was fun. Great.